Welcome to Piecing It All Together. I'm Randy Woodley. I'm Bo Sanders. And today we are going to be talking about revival. But before we get to that, Randy, I got to tell you, I am genuinely looking forward to the next six weeks and the change of seasons that's coming. My life changes drastically in the spring, man. I'm enjoying the longer days, and uh, it had gotten a little warmer before this recent storm, and so, and I also have a March birthday that I always look forward to because it signals for me sort of the start of my my getting out of the house more, and uh, so as a person with a March birthday, I really do anticipate uh, the changes that come from mid-March into April and May, so I'm, I'm chomping at the bit, as they say. Well, it is just coming down uh, like crazy here. The snow right now. Let's see what happens. We had to cancel our work day, which was oh, the last no. Saturday of February, because it was just everything was frozen and covered with snow. We couldn't do anything. So, um, so that first one of the year, and so that'll put us behind. But it, unless the weather is just really cold all spring, you know, and then. Yeah, it's going to be weird. Every every year is a, an experiment now with farming. Yeah. Well, should we talk about a little bit about revivalism? Yeah. We're talking about it right now, and it's an interesting um, religious and uh, sociological and anthropological phenomenon. Um, and and yeah. very, I would argue uh, an American slash British phenomenon. Agree. Yeah. And I want to make sure that we, cause I've been listening to uh, some reports on this and reading some stuff. And I think, you know, one of the things I want to make sure that I'm careful with is that there seems to be a real sloppiness or a lack of discipline by not distinguishing revival, like the, the event, the phenomenon with revivalism, which is like, you know, a historical thing that you and I can talk about where that comes from and then sort of what's going on behind the scenes and um, like what's being revived. And so those are just like three things that seem to me that all get lumped together, but I find them to be helpful and fascinating to actually distinguish between say the events of what's going on. And we can talk about that the history of those sort of things in America and then like big picture. What's, what's the point anyway? Yeah. So um, perhaps we start in Moravia with uh, Count Ludwig von Sensendorf. Okay. Um, And the, uh, the community that he built called Herrenhut, and uh, that was actually a sort of model that his grandmother had set forth. His grandmother was a early pietist, a German pietist, a Bohemian, I think. And, um, and she used to uh, basically give shelter and community to the likes of um, Spiner and some of the early uh, pietists in, in uh, uh, that uh, area of the country. And so there's a lot of sort of European stuff going on um, that came to American shores. Um, 
And uh, and then just the fact of, I think, the land itself and the freedom uh, that people felt uh, on the land um, sort of created this, um, you know, the, the Puritans really are the ones who experienced the first quote-unquote American revival, what we call the first Great Awakening, a la Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and um, the likes of that. Um, that was an interesting phenomenon. But if you look at the backdrop, I mean, what were they, what were they reviving from? Puritans who were just hateful people. They had a hateful God. Um, you know, he condemned all the natives. He condemned black people. You know, they were all subpar peoples, right? But God favored them, right? Um, uh, you know, uh, there's so many uh, kind of quotes that we could bring up by Cotton Mather and uh, William Bradford and other that's basically showed no regard for the people who were here. God was only interested in them. And so with that spirit, they began to build America. And then it was quite exclusive, um, keeping, you know, Quakers out. Uh, they would, uh, if a Quaker came in the Boston colony, the first time they could cut their ear off. Second time they could poke their eye out or cut their tongue off. And the third time they were caught in the uh, Boston colony, um, Massachusetts Bay colony, uh, they could be killed. Um, they also took Baptist and, you know, who talked about freedom of conscience and they, they, uh, you know, put them in stocks and whipped them publicly. And, you know, I mean, it was, th these were some mean ass people um, who were Jesus followers, supposedly, right? Christians. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and so it's, how far can you go when you get, you know, from sort of homicidal maniac people uh, to uh, who thinks they, they have all the answers with God? Remember, they're purists. And, uh, and then how far can you go to have a revival? Well, they went uh, far and talked about, um, you know, like Jonathan Edwards' famous, you know, uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Sure. You know? God is holding you over the flames of hell like a spider on its last strand of the web, you know. And these people had an angry, angry, ugly God. So I don't even recognize the first great awakening as a, a quote-unquote revival. I think um, they uh, that's what people call it. But, I mean, how bad can you understand who God is and still be called, you know, a follower? Um Certainly, they weren't practicing the words of Jesus. Wow. Okay. That is not where I thought you were going to go. So let me tell you where I thought you were going to go, and then let me respond to what you just asked. Where I thought you were going to go is when you were talking about uh, Count von Zinzendorf and the Moravians. Mm -hmm. So my tie-in is that I am lifelong Methodist. John Wesley's sort of awakening, since we're talking about revival— is after he goes on a mission to Georgia to convert right. natives, which failed miserably. He's on his way back across the Atlantic. The storm comes up. He's afraid for his life. And at the other end of the boat is this group of Moravians who are at total peace. And they're like singing. And, they're, and it so impacted him that when he gets back to England, he has like a crisis of faith, like, why were they good and I wasn't? And he ends up having at Aldersgate his heart strangely warmed and he became uh, a revivalist. He was 
right? This is where Methodism comes from. And the Methodists were actually kicked out of the Anglican church for their enthusiasm. This is the, right? That's where I thought you were going. If we look at a scale, right, a spectrum, um, Wesley uh, Wesley visited the Moravians and uh, found that their, uh, their singing was too sexual and too personal to God. Um, By his estimation? Yes, he, he, he felt that it was, and I didn't, he didn't use the word lewd, but it was another word like that. He, he, you know, their, their intimacy with God was beyond what he could understand. Oh, my goodness. That, now, that's, so what's interesting is he, but he's coming as an Anglican. Right. Which was this. This is where I thought you were going was what's being revived. And I thought you were going to talk about the context of like the state church and this sort of big, you know, edifice of, you know, liturgy and ritual and right. And just boring or lifeless, some people think. And so it needs to be revived. Yeah. So, yeah. So I don't know, you know, what people call revivalism is, is sort of like it was just a general like, you know, maybe God's not as bad as we think. Ah, yes. <laughs> and he might be paying attention to me. Um, so that's that's sort of my summation, unfortunately. Interesting. Unquote, okay. You've got my, my brain firing on a couple things. So let me tell you, on a personal note, uh, when I was in college in Redding, California, we used to pray for revival all the time. So I went to a college somewhat like um, – this one that's in Wilmore, Kentucky, where, by the way, you're very familiar with, for those who don't know, uh, Asbury is experiencing something people are trying to figure out if it's a revival. We can talk about that in a minute. But I come from a tradition where we used to pray for revival all the time. And like even during our worship services, like at chapel, when you really have a, a vibrant response, like an emotive uh, uh you know, a static experience. And sometimes we'd add an extra song or two at the end. And you always wondered is like, is this going to become like, is this how revival starts? Right. With in repentance. So I understand like the desire. So that's, that's the background that I, I come from. What's interesting to me is in the years since then, that anytime there has been something anywhere in this category of, a revival experience, something like that. People take it as validation of their position, their view, exactly. their rightness with God. And what's interesting to me is I do the exact opposite that I wonder when God graces us with this moment of a static experience, if it's not, a, a grace not deserved, not that it's because we're such good people. It's because we're not such good people. And so that's where the grace comes in is yeah. that we, it's not that we have earned it through the purity of our lives and our personal piety, but that God is gracing us in spite of us. Yeah. But I think I'm the only one who thinks that way. Cause no, you're not the only one who thinks that way. <laughs> it sounds to me like most people throughout the hits, my history of studying this stuff and what's happening right now in Wilmore, Kentucky at Asbury 
it almost is assumed that God wouldn't be doing this if we weren't really great. God's <laughs> pleased with us. Yeah. Well, so the first quote-unquote great awakening then, um, there was absolutely a, a uh, anthropological and sociological um, phenomenon that occurred. I mean, there was, you know, mass, uh, like especially like George Whitfield stuff, mm -hmm. who was actually probably the one of the leaders of the um, the biggest uh, effect on things. And, and you know, uh, Ben Franklin, who was by no means a uh, like a uh, committed follower of Christ or anything like that, would actually sometimes sponsor Whitfield's events. Um, just because that it was so amazing to watch like the theatrics of it all. Right. Wow. And, uh, Franklin was entertained by that kind of stuff. So, um, and then you, sometimes you would, you know, and he could speak to large groups and you have this effect. Uh, anthropologist Victor Turner called it spontaneous communitas. Mm -hmm. So it's like this feeling of everything is right in the world. This, you know, cathartic thing, which catharsis is great. I love catharsis. You know, I hope everybody gets to have their cathartic yes. all the time. Yes. Um, but um, it doesn't necessarily mean that's revival. What it means wow. is um, that, you know, hey, I've had a catharsis experience. A lot of other people have felt it. I feel a oneness with, you know, the universe. Yeah. Now, now the point is like, you know, what, what am I repenting from and where, what am I going to? Right. And so, um, you didn't see a whole lot of social uh, movements, uh, social improvement in the first great awakening. Basically yeah. it was all about everybody's individual experiences. Right. And that's what began to really take on uh, the individualist in American society. Um, <clears throat> now the pietists on the other hand, some of who were a bit revivalistic and some of who weren't the pietists all along did incredible things. They started orphanages was one of their big things. They, they did things uh, for widows. They, they started schools and different. So, you know, mm -hmm. all of these people weren't doing nothing, but the greatest effect that it had was this, this individual of our hearts being warm, this individualistic kind of yeah, a yeah. cathartic experience and then relating to the group as a whole. That's very different. Contrasted with the, with the Second Great Awakening, what's known as the Second Great Awakening, which had major, major social movement. I love this distinction so much because the social transformation that came after revival, that's what I was talking about with the big picture, right? So this is why the three things are important and, and you've branched them out good. So revival, the experience or the moment, like the phenomenon. You have revivalism, which I want to talk about Finney and the Second Great Awakening and all that stuff because uh, I used to live in that region yeah, they call the Burned Over the Burned Over District. Now they call it. Yeah, yeah, I used to live there, and I, I have a story I want to tell you about it. And then the third thing, which is what's what's the point? What's the big picture? If social transformation isn't right, the point of revival, and it might might not be. I'm open to the fact that it might not be. But what I find happening, and I've heard this called uh, that this thing that's happening right now is a Rorschach test, and that everyone's reading into it what yeah, they, they want to see. Uh, it's like an ink block, you know. But I think I think social transformation is a fascinating thing to talk about because if you're an individual, if you approach it as an individual, an individual holiness or individual 
personal piety is the point, right? That's very different than a social holiness, which is for the transformation of society in the world. Those are two really different things. Very, very much more holistic understanding of Mm. what the good news is all about. Mm. The whole Shalom theme, the Shalom Sabbath Jubilee structure of scripture and Jesus's kingdom and everything else is about like, you know, the whole thing. It's not just about me, Mm. but um, you know, the, the, and so in the second great awakening then became a catalyst for, abolition, women's rights, asylum, uh, uh, what they called at the time, insane asylum reform. Mm. Uh, uh, It became uh, prison reform, education, all all of these things that came out of that uh, was about like, what do I do? One of the greatest stories was, was uh, there, there are a couple, there's a number of figures who stick out, you know, uh, Charles Finney, of course, probably being the leader, um, uh, the Grimke sisters uh, and uh, Theodore Weld, which most people don't know about. Theodore Weld was a, a, uh, a one of Finney's disciples, and and uh, he decided he was going to be an evangelist like Finney. But Finney discouraged him and said, "No, no, your your whole bent is toward abolition. You should you should you know do whatever you need to do to be one of the greatest abolitionists." And so uh, he took a tour of the South. And by the way, he ends up marrying Angelina Grimke, which was the, a dynamic duo. They did all kinds of, cr- of great things, mm. interracial sort of things at a time when that was against the law and all kinds of stuff. But um, um, educating of um, freed blacks in Ohio and other things. But <clears throat> the uh, the thing that, that uh, Weld had so much influence on was that he wrote a book after he toured the South and saw slavery. And he, he called it Slavery As It Is. Mm-hmm. And it was a, um, a nonfiction book, you know, so it, it was true what he saw and it was his experiences. And it got a little traction, um, but a, a lady uh, from New England read it and, uh, and she asked Weld if she could write a fiction book based on his. And uh, that book was known as Uncle Tom's Cabin. And... Uh, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe was that that woman, and it was one of the still one of the top selling books in the history of books. It changed everything so much so that when Abraham Lincoln met Harriet Beecher Stowe, he said, "So you're the little lady that caused all this." <laughs> and awesome. so, um, you know, what we saw was that that um, revival then was not just for my sake, that it wasn't me, but my happiness was a byproduct of what uh, people saw God trying to do in the world to create a more just, equitable, shalom, if you will, harmony-based world. Um, And by doing right and and bringing uh, equality and justice to all kinds of places in society. And so... um, so if you judge a tree by its fruit, um, the, the first and second great, great awakenings look very, very different. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Let me uh, tuck two little things in there because that was really, I'm so glad to be talking with you about this. And because you are a historian, you know this stuff so well. Let me tuck in two little things here that I think are interesting as just far as like, um, you know, anecdotes is to help people sort of picture 
what this looks like on the ground. So when I lived in Saratoga Springs, New York for 11 years, uh, I was going through a leadership program where we had to do a final project and I decided to do it on Finney. And the thing that attracted me to Charles Finney was that uh, in Saratoga where I lived, about two towns south of us was Round Lake. And at Round Lake, there was this giant wooden tabernacle that was used for summer revivals. It wasn't like a four season building, right? And it had, it had this really unique thing where the walls could vent up and, and expand the space because when people would come to these summer revivals, there was standing room only and it allowed airflow through the building, but it also provided more shape and seating. Well, I happened to be a part of a denomination back then, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, that had one of their Christian camps out in Rome, New York. And when I went out to visit Rome for the first time, they had almost the exact same building. And I, I looked at it and I said, this looks like that thing in Round Lake. And it turns out that there were a dozen of these built during the Second Great Awakening, you know, that the revivalistic period all across uh, upstate New York and New England. And so I, I think there are only six still standing. I've seen four of them. And it's just a fascinating thing, like a moment in time where these things were built and they all have the identical architecture. I mean, that you could really just pick them up and plant one and you couldn't tell the difference barely. But one of the things that, that happened during that time, apparently, is that that generation, you know, caught up in the moment like they would there's a famous story about um ab simpson who's the founder of that denomination i was a part of that when the horses in the summer run at the track in saratoga it's a horse racing track to this day it's a huge thing you can watch the travers uh stakes in a couple months on tv um but when the men were at the track gambling the women would go down to round lake for a women's revival and they would often, you know, caught up in the moment, they would take off their rings and their jewelry and their earrings and put it in the offering plate. Well, one day there was a major upset at the horse track and the men lost everything. And then they came home and found out that their wives had given away their jewelry. So the men go down two towns to Round Lake, knock on the preacher's door and demand the jewelry back. <laughs> Well, I tell that story only to say that the reason that they call that region, you know, a generation later, it became the burned over region because it said that the fires of revival burned so fiercely through there, but that it didn't impact that next generation and the generational bitterness that grew in subsequent generations from their parents, either, either giving so sacrificially or being so zealous in their piety and holiness, but it really was off-putting to their children and grandchildren. And a real cynicism grew in that region that to this day makes it tough, uh, you know, to do like it's, you would never mistake it for the Bible belt or the deep South. Like it is very suspicious of, uh, um, emotional religion. Yeah. And a lot of um, sort of alternative communities uh, yeah. came out of that as well, you know, so, try, you know, they're like dissatisfied with Christianity. And so they would find some branch of some doctrine and 
you know, uh, yeah. So, um, and then, so, by the way, if people don't know, you could look up this group called the Oneida community. Yeah. And if you have Oneida plates or if your mom or, you know, your grandparents, if they had Oneida plates, go and look up the Oneida community. It was one of those 20 or more groups we would call cults now, but groups in upstate New York uh, who thought that, right, they wanted to live this way communally or they became end times um, anticipators. And there's a whole bunch of them that come out of that um, that era and that region. Yeah. So let's go to Azusa Street. Um, oh. So Azusa really um, uh, begins with a uh, a African-American man with one eye. His name was William Seymour. This is about uh, 100 years ago, 1906. Yeah. And uh, I, I thought it was interesting that, that uh, you know, the guy with one eye and the question is Willie Seymour, you know. So, um, and he did. Uh, and so, um, you know, he ends up through a number of circumstances in, Los Angeles, right? And Azusa Street becomes this sort of hot spot uh, for um, where it's really the the one of the streams of, of the beginning of Pentecostalism in this country. And um, and the, the the crazy thing about it, right, is that all this is happening. People are coming by the thousands. They're coming all from all over. They're coming from Europe and everywhere to be a part of this thing, to see people spontaneously healed and people are, you know, the miraculous is happening and all this. And in, like, Los, and in Los Angeles, people could get there by boat. Yeah. But here's the, uh, here's the thing. Here's, this is actually what I believe God was doing. It was being led by um, black folks. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, Mexican-Americans, women. Um, all the people who weren't allowed in the normal church setting to do things, they were the leaders. And this is the miracle of uh, Azusa Street. And then a group of fellows, white dudes, get together, and, uh, led by a guy who's active in the Klan. And, he's, uh, and they're total uh, anti-miscegenation, um, right, which is the mixing of races. And so they come in and they basically have to straighten everything out. <clears throat> Excuse me. A group of them get together um, eventually in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and they call themselves the Assemblies of God. And, and it's a whites only group, right? A number of white only and black only denominations begin as a result of that. Completely the opposite of what God was trying to do. Um, and it became, again, a thing where people centered on their own personal holiness uh, and whether they could speak in tongues or not and yeah. things like this. Um, then, you know, you move up, there's uh, um, the um, the Jesus people yeah. movement, revival where they were all tamed and becoming good yuppies and, you know, having Calvinist theology if you were uh, one of uh, uh um, Chuck Smith's disciples and um, and then they split, you know, the vineyard and, you know, on and so that became the what I call the birth of the non-denominational denominational churches. Yeah, yeah. So two personal tie ins. So that denomination that I was ordained with, they were a part of that 
after Azusa Street. So in 1911 to 1914, there was a split between the Christian Missionary Alliance and the Assembly of God. They have the exact same doctrinal statement, except for one thing. And that one thing is called the evidence doctrine, that you have to speak in tongues as evidence right. of the Spirit. But what happened is in that split, you know, the Assembly of God took the, let's call them the enthusiasts, with them, the emotional, right, worshipers. And then the CMA, it's, we joke, got the, you know, the headier or more thoughtful, right, split and became what they became. Their most famous writer that most people know is A.W. Tozer, like a devotional sort of theological thing. Yeah. So one it's of my favorite fundamentalist, by the way. What's that? He's one of my favorite fundamentalists. <laughs> Right, so paper. There's a couple of fundamentals nice. that I actually enjoy. <laughs> so that's one tie-in. Then the other thing is, you know, I grew up in the 80s outside Chicago, and the Jesus people, JPUSA, was big back then. And these are people who had been, you know, sort of in the countercultural, post-Woodstock, hippie, communal living, you know, simplicity movement. And it was fascinating that by the time I arrived for college in the late 90s in California, that that group had become, like you said, not just yuppie, but really conservative. Sometimes doctrinaire. Even, yes, very doctrinaire. Doctrinaire, yeah. And completely, you know, Bible obsessed mm-hmm. with like the Calvary Chapel and Right. It was just, it was a fascinating thing to be like, whoa, 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 this looks so different than what I knew in Chicago. How did that migration happen? Yeah. Right. Well, and then Japuza actually becomes pretty laden with its own rules, also. I've known people who live there. Oh, really? Yeah. I haven't kept track of them since then. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, there's one other thing about Finney that I wanted to talk about, and that's revivalism, which is the formulation, the sort of structuring of trying to bring about revival. I think this is fascinating. So uh, Finney came up with a, a set of rules or guiding principles called the new measures. And he made this thing, this spontaneous worship revival thing, and he tried to make it predictable that you could actually bring it about through these new measures. But when you look up the new measures, if somebody looks them up, what's going to strike you is that they're not new to us. It has become the way that many Americans, when they picture church, Protestant church, it's what they picture. Everything from the altar Billy Graham took Finney stuff and just copied all of it right it's amazing no it really if you've watched a billy graham revival on tv or if you've ever seen uh something like that on youtube i mean you are looking at finney's new measures yeah so yeah and the only thing uh, graham didn't do that finney did was call individuals out from the pulpit (laughs) yeah i've been in churches by the way because i'm tall and i'm skeptical i always get called out when i'm visiting churches that do that Every time they it's I know it's coming as soon as they start getting words for people. I know I'm going to get a word. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. You big center in the back. (laughs) (laughs) The guy I don't know who looks like he's not buying this. (laughs) (laughs) So here's why this is important to me. 
This thing is happening right now in uh, Kentucky. Seems to be really interesting. And I've heard many good things about it. Let me tell you two good things I've heard about it. One is that they are really prioritizing, you know, the faculty and staff of the college to not allow big name preachers to hijack this thing. So apparently there's people who in, in those circles are like well known as revivalists, right? Trying to formulate and bring about revival who desperately want to be a part of this and come center stage and speak. And they're not letting them do it. That's interesting that they're not going to let this be about any one person's personality. But The second thing that's interesting is, you know, there's a huge contemporary Christian music scene. If you've ever been driving somewhere and scanning the radio and you'll come on and you'll be like, "What, what am I listening to? It sounds like rock, but it's all, all of it is like worship to God. Like you're so great. I need more of you in my life. You say that I'm going to be blessed, you know, that kind of thing. And I used to call it synthesizer drum machine music. Yes. It's all formulated in like a studio in Nashville and it has a very similar sound, you know, but um, they're also not allowing the big personalities who are like well known in those circles to be the leaders of this thing. They're really allowing it to be what I hear is organic and student led. Now, people are coming from all over the world now because, you know, people are hungry for this kind of thing. And so people are coming from all over the world. So it's, it's no longer just students, but it really has become a spectacle, you know, in some sense. And, uh, but that's often true with these, with these things that happen. I just think it's, I just wanted to say that from what I've heard, you know, that's the positive thing I can say is it sounds like they're doing a pretty good job at not centering this on charismatic personalities and big name stars. Yeah. So being a little bit familiar with um, the uh, institution. Okay. um, Asbury University College was right across the street from the building that I uh, did my PhD in at the East Stanley Jones School School of uh, Mission um, in uh, Asbury Seminary. I spoke at the chapel before. I've attended numerous services when people like Ron Sider, one of my old professors, and other people would come. Um, and um, and I got to see the school pretty close up back then. Now, that's been, you know, uh, what, 15, 16 years ago. But, um, you know, I'm not imagining things have changed so much, especially when I look in the audience there and I see almost every face is a white face. Mm-hmm. There's a reason that those colleges have mostly white students. What's that? That's the way it's supposed to be. But there's also a reason that they have token minority students because then that sort of allows them a pass, right? Oh, so, you know, and then it generally colleges like that put their, you know, their uh, very small minority of um, students of color on their advertising and in their promos and things like that. And then um, often they, they have almost all white professors um, and, uh, and then if they have uh, any faculty of color, they, of course, who are adjuncts, they put them on the. So this is some part of the game of Christian colleges. Uh, and then they charge a high rate because they know students, um, parents want them to be insulated from the evils of society. And so 
that kind of stuff is just, to me, it's just really dishonest. Um, and the administrators of those kinds of places should be held accountable for that. My first question is, like, were they repenting for the kinds of things that they've been sustaining there? Were they repenting for uh, the absorbent rates that um, private Christian college students have to pay uh, and then take on debt? You know, um, there's a lot of things that's just sort of built in the system there that, for not exposing them to uh, um, voices and um, people who are very different in their thinking. Um, so that uh, sort of paternalistic, insular kind of experience that that most, including Asbury colleges, um, end up. I mean, they go on mission trips, right? They get exposed to people that they're helping. Um, so my first question is about the administration, and then my, my second questions have to do with, you know, like, well, who was saying what then during this time? What were they repenting for and from and? Mm-hmm. What were they moving towards? And I I heard that a group of black students one time uh, were able to address them and uh, to the sort of, and uh, I don't know what was said or anything like that. And that was, that's very hopeful. Mm-hmm. But um, the way that women have been treated in Christianity in the church, is that, did that come up? Uh, the way that genocide occurred with Native Americans, the enslavement of black folks, Jim Crow and the continued, um, the uh, the the vehemency of the right wing and uh, its uh, marriage with politics and what it's trying to do, a la Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. And, you know, uh, these are things that are obvious to, you know, most of America, but the church seems to be on the other side of the tracks for this. They're on the good side, quote unquote. And so, um, you know, are they coming over? Are they understanding? So, so one guy, um, I posted something on my Facebook page, and one guy uh, shared it, and someone was saying, you know, you know, critis- critiquing me, which is fine, but um, but his thing was, you know, well, what is bad religion? Because I mentioned that if it's just reinforcing bad religion, then they may be in worse shape than they were. Mm-hmm. Bad religion is the religion that you know has committed genocide against Native Americans, has enslaved Black folks. Um, has maintained Jim Crow, has done the anti-Chinese and anti-Asian acts, has, um, you know, stopped uh, asylum seekers, say, running from their lives to come across the southern border. It's those, that's bad religion. So Mm -hmm. I want to be clear. But that's status quo religion in America for much of Christianity. So just wondering, my questions are, well, where's this thing going? How is it directed? Um, you know, I'm all, I'm all for uh, like uh, catalytic yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, experiences, but um, cathartic experiences. But, uh, you know, like, is that revival or is that just sort of a a, a personal heart cleansing? Yeah. Um, and is it, you know, is it heading somewhere that maybe... Uh, yeah. God is interested, or is it just reinforcing the same DNA and Christianity yeah. that's always been there? So those are my questions. Yeah, I appreciate that. This is why I wanted to get to that third thing of big picture. Like, what's the point? So I, if it doesn't bring about a transformation of society and culture, right, then it's basically an extended worship service, which might be great. Unless that is taken as personal validation of your current position, right? Exactly. I think what would be great 
You know, if I can just say, to give it the benefit of the doubt, or to play devil's advocate, however you like to phrase that, is if, though, this were to be a genuine move of repentance towards a, 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 a catalyst for change, isn't Kentucky a great place to start <laughs> in the sort of the button in the middle of the Bible Belt for going up into Ohio and into Pennsylvania, right down into West Virginia and maybe even the South to go West? I mean, I'm yeah. just. It's a, it, it's a, if a this were to history. be. Say it again. Kentucky has an interesting history. You know, there were. There were, uh, it was a slave state, but um, there were people like Cassius Clay who, you know, long before emancipation uh, occurred uh, under Lincoln's laws, um, uh, set his slaves free and his enslaved people free. Um, So there were, Kentucky's an interesting place, Berea, which has this alternative history than uh, much of Kentucky. So, um, yeah, Kentucky's an interesting place. It's also just a few miles from where we were run out and lost everything by white supremacists, yeah. white nationalists. <clears throat> I mean, literally, it's about, I think it's about six miles away, yeah. uh, seven miles maybe from our house where all of this, um, and we lost everything. Um, so uh, so for me, that that's really you know, I hope it. I hope it does uh, do something good. Uh, I hope there is some social transformation. I hope there is uh, not just a sort of repeating of the same DNA, and um, because you know, sometimes people become more passionate about it, and they also uh, then become more violent about it. And right now, um, violence by white nationalists, white terrorists, is up by about eight hundred percent over past years. Um, so they've been given permission to do what they want to do. And most of it's in the name of Christianity. So on what side will these people fall? This is sort of what I'm watching. Okay. Well, listeners, we would love to know your feedback and your thoughts. And uh, we'll keep this conversation going. We especially want to thank our Patreon supporters for helping us to host this conversation. If you would like to become a supporter through Patreon, and um, if you have found this helpful or interesting, please share it with anybody that you think would find it interesting. And uh, we just can't say thank you enough. I enjoy these conversations. I always walk away uh, with more than I came in with. Uh, Mostly questions, but, you know, that's okay. And uh, we'll keep an eye on this thing. and Maybe we'll have to talk about it again. All right. Sounds good. Um, Do you think, one question for you is, once you say, all right, listeners, do you think there's any people left listening anymore? Or do they just (laughs) get the thing? (laughs) 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 I do listen out there still. Let us know that you still. Yeah, yeah. You know, I used to say it at the beginning, just right up front, because I figured, well, people are still listening. But yeah, I guess if anybody's still with us, God bless (laughs) you. See you next time.